0: This week on Dig Me Out Wild. 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 With your hosts Jason Ziyech and Tim Minichi,
1: Jay, this week we have a guest joining us to help us uh, review a record and uh, it's one that he he actually gave us a list of records he thought, hey, you guys should check out some of these. And then there was one on there that was like a glaring, you need to check this one out. <laughs> uh, because yeah. it's so far afield from what we've normally reviewed, but yet was still, I guess, you know, pretty important to the decade, yeah. even though it wasn't a band that sold a billion records. Um, so joining us from the Vinyl Emergency podcast, Mr. Jim Hankey. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, guys. You suggest, there was a bunch of records you suggested that we check out. Um, John Spencer Blue's Explosions album, uh, Now I Got Worry, from 1996. And um, I want to get into that. But before we do, I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention the passing of Prince. Um, our last episode went up, the Goo, Goo Dolls Hold Me Up episode, which has a Prince cover. And we talked about Prince briefly on that episode, sort of in passing. Um, But it was recorded before he passed away and then went up after he passed away. So we didn't get really to to talk about it. So I thought now would be a good time to spend a couple minutes before we get into the John Spencer album talking about Prince. I just want to get your guys sort of, I guess, what you're left with in terms of his career and how it impacted you, his music and stuff. Jim, I'll start with you. I think you had some thoughts that you wanted to share. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny, we were talking off air, too, that
2: I'm kind of in the same boat as far as mentioning Prince uh, on several different occasions um, right up until he died. Um, There was an episode I did uh, recently, um, it was a preamble, I believe, to uh, an episode I did with Damon uh, Atkinson from Braid and Hay Mercedes, but uh, I was talking with a friend of mine, a record collector friend of mine, Rob Clark, who had attended the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction, Recently, with Cheap Trick and NWA and all that stuff. And we were talking about past inductions and we talked about the 2004 uh, induction of George Harrison, where Prince comes on and does this, you know, mind blowing solo over While My Guitar Gently Weeps, a song apparently, according to Rolling Stone, that he had never heard up until he had to rehearse for this. And the whole reason he wanted to even play uh, this was because he wanted to play with Tom Petty. Like Prince wanting to play with Tom Petty is, is kind of kind of blows my mind because he said "Free Fallen is one of his favorite songs ever, um, and he just wanted the opportunity to play with Tom Petty. So Olivia um, George's widow was kind of skeptical about you know she basically wanted anybody who knew George to play uh, on that uh, on you know during that set. And Prince didn't know George Harrison. I don't think they ever met, and so she was skeptical about that. And I think Danny. Uh, Harrison and the um, organizers convinced her and and, and look how that turned out. I've probably watched that solo now, you know, 25 times since he passed passed away. Um, But also, um, not getting too off topic, but also um, my recent episode uh, on Record Store Day, I had um, taken it upon myself to drive to six different record stores in two states on Record Store Day just to interview store owners and people. Uh, in line for records because the podcast if people haven't checked it out is primarily about vinyl and uh, I spoke with the gentleman in line who talked about you know Purple Rain being one of the first albums that was ever kind of gifted to him or you know that he kind of spun as a youth and um, record store day was the day after Prince had the emergency plane landing in western Illinois um, where apparently at the time it was flu-like symptoms um He was at an emergency room, left. We don't know yet as to whether or not he left on his own recognizance or whether he was actually, you know, whether he, him and his crew, left uh, against doctor's orders or, you know, we don't know. Um, But I was speaking with this gentleman and I said, oh, yeah, we almost lost Prince yesterday. And he didn't know about it and I kind of told him about the emergency plane landing and he said, um, oh, okay, well, I'm I'm glad to know everything's okay in the world of Prince. Um, So, like... (laughs) It just it baffles me to have to then, uh, you know, talk about talk about this so shortly after that. Like we thought everything was was fine. Um, Prince is a guy who, you know, I grew up. I, I went to high school from '93 to '97, so my first real introductory to Prince uh, was from videos and such, like Diamonds and Pearls and um, Cream and Seven and Get Off and Sexy Motherfucker and all that stuff. And, uh, and then going back and understanding, you know, 1999 and um, Little Red Corvette and and uh, I Would Die for You and all those classic songs. Um, like David Bowie, uh, I don't want to, you know, certainly compare Prince of David Bowie because they're two completely unique artists. But like David Bowie, it, the, he differs from the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or any of these other iconic musicians – in the fact that I can't name one person I've ever talked to who thought Prince or David Bowie um, sucked. There are people out there. I'm sure we have friends who are like, you know, you've got the token friend who's like, eh, I don't really like the Beatles. Yeah. The Beatles are overrated or, you know, <laughs> but, but whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, whether they're saying that just to be cool or whatever it is. But never. I mean, never will you you, you would be hard pressed to find anybody who is a fan of music like. You know if you got somebody who'd like just listens to the radio stuff and doesn't really fully invest in music, you know, maybe they would say this. But anybody like us who are diehard music fans who, who eat it and live it and breathe it, um, I don't think you'd ever find anybody who would say this artist flat out sucks. Um, everybody liked Prince, everybody liked David Bowie, and from what I understand, you know, Prince is a guy who just created stuff on a whim. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with, and it's probably been shared a bunch of times, this story, this long 30-minute story that Kevin Smith tells about working with Prince on a project that has never seen the light of day. Uh, And it's one of many. It's one of possibly hundreds or thousands of things that Prince just kept vaulted up. And dear God, like, you know, you've got Paisley Park where you can record whenever you want. You've got Thousands upon probably millions of dollars at your disposal to literally just create music videos for songs that weren't singles and they're just vaulted up not because he was unhappy with the finished product but because he can just he can just do it like eh. That was fun. That was a fun Sunday. All right, you know, like lock it up and yeah. and no one ever sees it. Um, so I don't. I mean, there's so much more that's going to be said about him in coming weeks and months and years and stuff. Um, he was just the most badass. Like he just that smirk, that smirk he would give to the camera or live or whatever. Um, you know, James Brown, Michael Jackson, those guys didn't really have that look in their eye. Prince did. Prince had yeah. this just like you know. you you know, I'm the shit. I know that, you know, I'm the shit. Uh, it's, it's, it's un, it's unbelievable that he's gone. and, And that confidence is unparalleled. Even when we talk about artists today that seem to exude that confidence, like a Beyonce or Rihanna or, you know, Mick Jagger or something like that. I mean, there is no, they don't have the swagger. No one not James Brown, not Michael Jackson none of these artists had the swagger that Prince did And when you when you create a <laughs> I'm laughing trying to keep from crying um, when you create a for a movie or a TV show or a play where you kind of write in this like rock star role like this this iconic like oh somebody's gonna be a rock star and they've got like a crew they're decked out they are, you know quiet but they can like run the room basically that's prince like that's like when anybody is like going like okay we need like a really like crazy rock star that basically lives on another planet and uh you know has crazy requests and but yet can still bring a room to to absolute silence just by like snapping his fingers um we had a real person like that and that's prince so um yeah
0: so I, that was a great point about the the, like the confidence and the swagger mm-hmm. because the people you listed off, I think the one thing that makes him unique is that all of those people needed other people to help them make their music, right? I mean, even Michael Jackson oh, yeah. yep. couldn't really play an instrument. I mean, he would like vocally write his songs and, and, and then have other, you know, musicians or Quincy yep. Jones come in and help him. Prince right. could do everything. So he didn't need anybody, right? I mean, he could sing, he could dance, he could do all the pop, star stuff but he could also pick up a guitar and play as good as anybody and write his own material and pretty much go in the studio by himself and do whatever it is he wanted to do which that gives you swagger you know what i mean at the end of the day he knew like i'm completely independent like i don't you know he obviously had a lot of side musicians that were really important and great but He would bring people in and out when he wanted and he would do things himself when he wanted. And he pretty much had uh, the talent and maybe even more so he had put in the time to learn how to play, you know, everything and do everything. So he got to the point where he was a professional musician.
2: It was just like, I'm going to do what I want to do because I I can. Yeah. One thing that never comes up with when we look at iconic like guitar players and stuff like Jimmy Page, um, I'll put Slash in that category. Prince, um, they exude this cool, right? Like they, they have always have, um, they exude this thing that they are just like partying till four in the morning. They are, you know, uh, living a crazy lifestyle and they are some of the greatest guitarists that have ever lived. But to be one of the greatest guitarists that ever lived, we don't factor in how Long Prince or Slash or any of these people had to sit in a room and practice, right? Yeah, yeah like mm-hmm. this doesn't Prince isn't just pick up a guitar at seven and he's a virtuoso. Mm-hmm. Um, the fa- so so now picture how cool Prince is, right? But then picture how nerdy you have to be to learn to be that good at not only guitar but every instrument. Yep. Mm-hmm. So think about that dedication, and then think about when Prince came out. You know, in the eighties. And it's like he had to live this entire life of just being lo- you know locked in to learning his craft and then just kind of like boom, you know, like a phoenix, I'm Prince. Yep. Um, that's just unbelievable to me. Um, how you know we look at these really amazing musicians and don't factor in the years and years and years and blood and sweat of practice that had to go into that and you're right like prince could he could like just cut you off he could just like i don't need you that that's a phrase that i think keeps coming back it's like he didn't need anybody so the mm-hmm. people that he did choose to play with him they they were honored to be there because he he wouldn't need them there's no nece- there's no necessity for four guitarists on a prince stage mm-hmm. but he want he wanted that he could have played all those he could just have one guitar and it's just prince mm-hmm. Um, and also one thing that keeps coming up too is his, uh, uh, the, the need to have and the want to have full bands full of, of women. Um, if anybody caught the SNL tribute uh, recently to him where they played all his performances, you know, most recently he's got a band, drums, guitar, bass, keys, everyone is female aside from him and you just don't see that. Um the only thing that comes close is a couple of years ago when Jack White would uh, go on tour he would alternate nights he would have an all male band or an all female band. Um and that's pretty remarkable as well but um you know watching these super accomplished women who you're not fam- you know I, I I look at them and I'm not familiar with what bands they possibly played in or or what I would know them from because they look like they're from outer space you <laughs> like they just they yeah. look They look crazy. One's got a cloak on, one's got half a shaved head and and looks like she's out of Mad Max or something. And they are like as good as Prince. So I was just thinking to myself, like, how do you find these people? If you're you're Prince, I mean, people know, you know, we know musicians and stuff and they know, you know, roadies who become guitar techs who become, you know, maybe stage players, you know, that sort of thing. But, you know, if you're Prince, you just you can just like basically call these people into, you know, from call these people from the ether and they're just like in your band and stuff. It's just, I'm kind of going off on a tangent,
1: but, um, that's a, I have a little story about how Prince finds people actually. Oh, okay. Um, I happen to, you know, something <laughs> that is crazy. And Jay will be like, what the hell? But, um, okay. So my mother-in-law who is a, a music fan, um, and her husband is my, my father-in-law are as well um they have a friend lived in uh lorraine and um was really into music but also into computers in like the early 90s when you would get onto like bulletin boards and like chat via that way and um she was on some sort of bulletin board for music and um struck up struck up a conversation again this is like early 90s so there's no social media or anything like that struck up a conversation with a guy over this bulletin board and um this goes on for months they're talking about music and they're talking about their lives and stuff and it's not like a romantic thing they're just sort of exchanging information and and he asked her what she does and she worked in some sort of charitable field was her was her job at the time and he's like well i'm actually i'm looking for someone to help me um i'm I have a little bit of money and I'm looking to do some charitable work. And she's like, oh, okay. Well, actually, I I know quite about quite a bit about that. And um, he's like, well, do you think we could set up a meeting? A little weary about meeting some guy uh, off the internet. But she's like, okay. He's like, all right, well, I'm going to have my plane come and pick you up. And she's like, excuse me? And she's he's like, well, um, my name is Prince. And I'm a musician. And I'm looking for someone to to vet my charities for me. So he lands a plane, his private plane, in whatever private small airport there is in the Amherst-Lorraine area. Jay, is there an airport up there?
0: Yeah, there's a Lorraine County.
1: Okay, so there. the the Prince jet lands there, picks her up, flies her back to Paisley Park, and for like the next 15 years, she works for Prince as his charity vetter, and researches charities, figures out who he's going to work with, what donations are going to be made, sets up charitable events. And she does it all from her house in Lorraine. And then when they have parties, the the Prince plane will fly in, pick her up, fly her up to Minneapolis. She'll go to the party and then fly her back home. And that's what she did for like 15 years. And I know this is true because Katie, my wife, would show me these t-shirts that she would get from these events that were like special Prince events up in Paisley Park. And um, that she would bring back and give to Katie's mom. And then Katie's mom would give it to her. And so he definitely had a way of, like, <laughs> a unique way of finding people. Whether it was through bulletin boards in the early 90s. I'm guessing he has, like, some sort of connection to, like, musicians who have who are virtuosos and who are go through a lot of training to play with him. Because he is such a virtuoso and... You're not going to get you're not going to have like Maceo Parker show up off the street to play with him like Maceo Parker is an accomplished jazz musician. Right. So he's got to have some sort of connections in places where he must know, oh, this is the amazing new bass female bass player. that just came out of, you know, whatever Carnegie or whatever played with this. These people are so right. that's my Prince story. Wow, that's incredible.
0: <laughs> I mean, that's consistent with I don't know if you guys saw the Van Jones uh, um, bit he did on the on the news right after it was announced. But I mean, he he said because he was a Jehovah's Witness prince that all the charitable stuff he was doing he wasn't he wasn't supposed to talk about it And basically, told everybody else that knew him they weren't supposed to talk about it. And if right. they did, they knew they were going to be out of the circle again because. Basically, you know, he chooses who's in and who's out. So that's consistent with, like, him kind of working completely out of the public eye despite mm-hmm. being a very public person uh, and, and orchestrating all of these things either for his band or, you know, he mentioned that the all the shows he had been doing, those are all covers for charitable work. Like, that's why he doesn't do, like, the big, um, you know, world tour kind of thing. You know, he does these, like, short little fly-in, fly-outs Um, you know, if you think about it, you know, everybody else's contemporaries, you know, Paul McCartney every year is doing a mega tour that's promoted Guns N' Roses and all these other bands, you know, it's, it's, you know, a very public, uh, stadium or arena kind of thing. And he had really, to to at least my memory, hadn't really done that kind of thing. It's always been like little one-offs or like maybe a month string of things or probably even shows that people don't even know about, you know, secret things or non-publicized so yeah i mean that's very consistent with uh, with what he was saying
1: i did go back and look at um I, I still have some mixed cassettes that i made when i was a teenager like and even young like i'm talking like 10 11 years old and they have like when doves cry and 1999 and and those things mixed in with like you know bon jovi and Def leopard and all that stuff from the mid 80s to to that era so I was definitely on board and, and I probably have everything digitally that he's released because I would find stuff in used bins you know you'd find like emancipation or the crystal ball you know for like it's a triple disc or something like that ridiculous and you could get it for like you know seven or eight99 in the used bin in the early 2000s so I ripped a lot of that stuff and and ended up selling the CDs, so I don't actually have the CDs anymore which I regret because now when you <laughs> if you're going to go try to buy them they're going to be ridiculously overpriced oh yeah I mean just
2: from a, just from a vinyl perspective I mean I've already just been combing discogs just to see what's happening and I mean it's just it's pretty ridiculous like I would I would really like um, uh, there's a, a hits uh, two volumes of hits uh yeah. things that came out and um I think I remember I, I definitely don't anymore but I think I remember having the triple CD set of that when that came out, and um, yeah, it had the B
1: sides as the third disc. Yeah, yeah, and I was yeah. just
2: curious to see what that was going for on vinyl now, and um, yeah, it's already, I mean, in the hundreds of dollars and stuff. Um, I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll also say that I hadn't checked that out like you know a month ago. I have no idea if that's you know uh, good for that compilation or right. not, but um, you know, I'm just. With Bowie and, and all this stuff, I'm just anxious to see, you know, what that means for the vinyl market. Um, you know, uh, there are there are stores near me. You know, I live in suburban Chicago. There are stores near me that, you know, don't tend to increase price due to, um, you know, a, a rock star's death, uh, which I appreciate greatly. But, you know, that's not the same for online retailers or, you know, other record stores. Certainly, it all depends. So uh – uh. I, I wanted to mention the uh,
0: <laughs> that that Prince kind of brought me back to music. Now, kind of jogging my memory here, I uh, I was really in as a really young kid into like Kiss and like classic rock stuff, right? So I was born in '74. So between like '74 and like probably the late '70s, I was really into that. And I had my brother's Kiss records, whatever. Um, then for like three years, I didn't listen to music at all. Like I just didn't keep up with it and I heard um, on the radio, I started hearing 1999 and Little Red Corvette. And also at that time, the band, The Time, were, were, I think, had their hits and Mm -hmm. were sort of becoming a thing. And, you know, going back pre-internet, like, you're, you're at the mercy of what you hear on the radio, the time you hear it, whether or not you hear, like, them, you know, tell you who the artist was. So I remember loving 1999 and Little Red Corvette and saved up by money, You know, I'm whatever, eight years old. And I go to the store to buy the record or the tape, the cassette. (laughs) I didn't know, like, it was Prince. I just kind of knew the songs. I ended up buying the time on on (laughs) mistake. And I come home and I've got my little, like, Fisher Price or whatever toy cassette player. And I put the tape in and I'm like, no, that's not the song. That's not the song. (laughs) I did the whole thing. I'm like, wait a minute. I bought the wrong tape. No. Oh, man. So I had to take it. I think I either took it back or I sold it. But I ended up with getting 1999, And then I also bought uh, Minute Works, Business As Usual. And and I that was the only two cassettes I owned for probably three or four years until I really got into like, you know, Van Halen's 194 was big and sort of took off on all that stuff. But like for probably two or three solid years, the only music I owned and listened to, my little Fisher Price cassette player was Prince's 1999 and Men at Work. Wow. <laughs> so, wow.
2: That's awesome. So
0: that's, <laughs> that's great. Like, kind of brought me back after a couple years of just not even knowing anything about music, kind of brought me back to music.
1: Well, it's going to be an odd transition, but we should probably talk about the record um, <laughs> that we are, are here for. So uh,
2: this, might be, this might be the biggest swing from like the most polished. <laughs> most polished um uh most uh you know vir- uh, virtuoso of musicians into one of the the rawest weirdest records
1: uh, oh yeah
2: to, to come out in the the mid-90s for sure
1: almost a deconstruction of music yeah and, in, in, a, in a way so we're going to talk about the john spencer blues explosion and their 1996 album now i got worried that i mentioned earlier Hello. Just so everybody's on the same page, I'm just going to explain who John Spencer uh, Blues Explosion, Explosion are. Uh, they formed in 91 in New York City. It was after the band Pussy Galore. And um, the band was made up, or is made up, because they just put out a record recently. Um, John Spencer on guitar and vocals and theremin. Uh, Judah Bauer on guitar and... Backing vocals, harmonica, occasionally did some lead singing, um, and then Russell Simmons, not the Russell Simmons you're thinking of. This this is a different Russell Simmons. Uh, on drums, no bass player. Just put that out there. I'm always insulted when there's no bass player. It's <laughs> all right. We'll get past that. So put out a bunch of records. Leader Kenny doesn't have a bass player. I know. Okay. I'm a little offended by it, but that's all right. Oh, all right. Uh, put, put out a bunch of records in the early 90s, and they signed a... Well, not a bunch of records, a couple records in the 90s, and then uh, f- uh, signed a Matador. First album on Matador was called Extra Width, and uh, that came out, I believe, in 93. Orange was released in 94. You probably know that one because it had the single Bell Bottoms on it, and um, that was the probably the the single that got most played on college radio and whatnot. Also, if you listen to the Sound Opinions podcast, uh, it's part of their intro music, that song. And then the I'm Reviewing Now I Got Worry came out uh, October of 1996. And as I mentioned, the band has continued to um, put out records all the way up to last year. They put out the Freedom Tower No Wave Dance Party. And they've worked with a lot of artists and toured with a lot of uh, a variety of artists working with um people like elliot smith Beck, ad rock of the beastie boys uh solomon burke steve albini i mean just a, a, a wild selection of artists and on uh, this album actually features a dub Narcotic uh cover and they worked with rl burnside prior to this record and he appears on this record so it's just a, a lot of stuff going on with this band kind of a critics darling, I guess you'd say, but never really caught on in, in, in the mainstream. I don't think I think that's right. fairly. It's fairly, evident. O-
2: it's fairly obvious, <laughs> it's fairly, if, fairly if, obvious. If anybody just looks up live performances of theirs. I mean, I uh, put up, um, you know, I, I had found a, a, a live version of two kinds of love from this album. Uh, and apparently it was on some kid's show, uh, some like young, you know, like a younger, like maybe 10 to maybe age demographic was like nine to 14 or something like that. Um, And they just like, they just basically tear shit up for longer, longer than two kinds of love goes. Um, It's, it's unreal, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's easy to, it's, I I can understand both spectrums. It's, you know, I'm watching that and I'm like, why doesn't this have 3 million views? This is the greatest thing ever. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then to the general public, it's like noise and, and
1: ridiculousness. So now, Part of the reason why I was interested in, in doing this record is because last year I read uh, a book by Eric Davidson of the New Bomb Turks. It's called We Never Learned the Gunk Punk Undergut, 1988 to 2001. And this band uh, is featured in that book. Okay. And John Spencer specifically talks about uh, the Gibson Brothers, which were a Columbus, Ohio band. And about the influence of the Gibson Brothers on the sound of the John Spencer Blues Explosion. Um, basically, that when the John Spencer Blues Explosion started off, they were basically being the Gibson Brothers Part 2. Um, and then sort of evolved into their own sound from there. But uh, that book is really interesting because it talks... I mean, basically, Columbus, Ohio was a little bit more important than just creating... Um, Bands that we've talked about, like Gaunt and Holland Maggie and Thomas Jefferson Slave Apartments, there was actually a a, a punk 80s scene that with the New Bomb Turks in the late 80s and 90s, and then the Gibson Brothers, um, there was a band called the Cheater Slicks who had moved from another state but came to Columbus. Um, All these were rather influential bands in terms of uh, what was going on with this time period of 88 to 2001 that he covers um so getting to talk about john spencer we get to talk a little bit about that and um we should probably just dive into the record a little bit since it's uh already our, our overall opinions of <laughs> or or impressions have bubbled up a little bit jay were you familiar with john spencer had you listened to him at all
0: yeah i remember when i got to wfal the Radio station college i remember this i think this record had just come out okay and it was pretty being pushed pretty hard um and i felt like it was the first time i'd heard sort of this deconstructed raw garage blues oriented kind of thing that Mm -hmm. i think later on became way more commercial um so it definitely struck my ear at that point i hadn't heard anybody doing that until I heard him and heard this record.
1: So yeah, I, I'd heard some of the songs at the time and I, I remember it being pushed quite a bit. Jim, were you a fan back in the day of John Spencer or was that something you acquired later? Um, this is uh, kind of interesting. I'm, I'm glad we picked this record because I remember,
2: um, and I talk about this a little bit on my uh, podcast in earlier episodes, Of I remember growing up in Milwaukee and um, being turned on to indie music through basically... Uh, Atomic Records, uh, which was a record store on the um, east side of, of Milwaukee, and then uh, Milk Magazine, which was this free zine that um, a guy, Josh Modell, who worked at Atomic, um, put out with uh, his publishing partner, Jim Miner, and Josh Modell uh, currently is one of the uh, uh, big wigs at the AV Club, um, so I talk with him a bit about um, that influence on me and such. And, and Through Atomic, I remember, and through Milk. I remember seeing ads for Extra Width and Orange and even the Boss Hog album which came out in 95 and it was John Spencer and um, his wife who uh, whose name escapes me at the moment. Um, so I remember seeing that artwork, I remember seeing those things and not really knowing much about it and I got – now I got worried for the first time on tape. Uh, it was taped for me by a, uh, a girl in my uh, high school homeroom, uh, she was an incoming – Freshmen and it was my job to take all the incoming freshmen in the homeroom like around the school and stuff and kind of show them uh, around because this time this record came out in fall of 96 so this would have made me a, a senior and This uh, particular uh, girl. I remember she was a total uh, raver like uh, the gigantic Jinko jeans the sweaters with the cuffs that like cover your hands and stuff like that and so I guessed that she was into like rave music or like you know techno or you know whatever and I don't know if there was some day like later in it must have been you know fall or maybe even early 07 where we must have been talking about music and she um, told me she was going to tape some bands for me and she gave me this tape of uh, John Spencer Blues Explosion Now I Got Worry on Side A and another record that I might have even brought up with you guys I forget if I did but um, the one that's Carried with me even more than this record is Harmacy uh, from Sebado, and that was on side B. And um, I just I absorbed these records like crazy. Like, um, that's pretty much my first um, uh, introduction to John Spencer Blues Explosion as well as Sebado. I didn't get into Sebado when Bake Sale came out. So, um, this, like Jay said, this was also kind of my first introduction into this raw, garagey, uh, broken. Crazy sound. And, um, you know, John Spencer Blues Explosion is, you know, not the first and not the last to do this kind of style. Um, uh, there's a band, uh, Flat Duo Jets, that mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people cite as a big influence, Jack White especially. Uh, growing up in Milwaukee, there's a band called The Mistreaters um, that, uh, you know, I think if they don't cite John Spencer as an influence, um, it, it falls in the same ballpark at least. And yeah, like all I knew and I don't remember how I read about it or how I knew, but even before I ever had seen footage of them playing, I had somehow known that they ended songs uh, with John Spencer saying things like, you know, blues explosion or uh, they would end a song and you just go, the blues is number one, like over and over and over. <laughs> I have no idea how I knew that. It was just this, this ridiculous like, uh, you know, Carnival Barker uh magnetism that that he has it's just ridiculous and and to end this power trio again with your like you said with no bass to just like they end a song and he just goes into the mic blues explosion for no reason it's just i i somehow knew that uh even though they didn't do it on this particular record uh or you know shouting the blues is number one like you know it's crazy (laughs) um so that's kind of my introduction uh to this to this record
1: Jay, tell me something you liked.
2: Well, I mean, you can tell
0: that, uh, you know, he's a guitar player. I I felt like, listen to this, I could tell he's a guitar player first. Um, I think there's some really cool interpretations of, you know, taking blues oriented riffs that can get a little stereotypical and injecting them with uh, more broadness, energy, sometimes just pure speed, Um, you know, playing them faster so they approach more of a punk feel. Sometimes it makes them feel more funky. It's an interesting, uh, sort of deconstruction and then repurposing of, you know, very traditional kind of, you know, progressions and chord structures and those sorts of things. So I enjoy that aspect. Um, there's a lot of bands that, you know, that do that, that I, I find, you know, pretty interesting. Um, so I, I think the guitar stuff is is pretty cool, and I think the overall approach of the, of you know how to de- deconstruct the blues and reinvent it uh, into a new sound is is works pretty well.
1: Jim, is there something that stands out for you on this record that you enjoy? Uh, just the energy. Um, I'll say that I don't really look at John Spencer
2: or Judah Bauer as exceptional guitar players necessarily. I think they complement each other super well and i appreciate and love the the fuzziness and the unpredictability of this band um i think that's what kind of drew me to the record uh itself um one of my favorite things with jack white when he plays guitar is not necessarily a really amazing technically good solo it's when it sounds like his guitar is about to break in his hands you know, when um, there's just feedback or it sounds kind of clumsy or, you know, whatever. That's what I really enjoy. And that this album is that to a T um, from the very first. I don't know if we're going to go track by track or what. But no, 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 the, no, no, th- now no. It now it's 16 but, songs. <laughs> that, right, right. That, that was that was, you know, from the very beginning, you know, if people go to Spotify or however and you access this record right now. And the first 15 seconds, 30 seconds is John Spencer screaming at the, you know, I mean, just... It is a ridiculous introduction to an album. I had read an article, uh, some sort of interview with Connor Oberst years ago, and he talked about on um, Bright Eyes Records, s- specifically making the first song really agitated or really hard to listen to for somebody who might just be coming to the band uh, immediately or coming to the band raw and not really – it was his way whether whether I agree with this or not there you know, you catch me on a different day and I, and I think it's kind of ludicrous but on other days I think it's pretty smart um it was his way to to make a track that didn't appeal to everybody it'd be the first song it was his way to weed out people uh who might just like be listening to it um to be popular or, or whatever and um and that's that's been interesting to me to say the least uh and this uh, this record is just... If you get past the screaming for the first thirty seconds, if you can get past that, um, this that same energy is throughout this record. Um, you know, I think it's. I think that's what it is. So when it, when you ask like what attracts me to this record, it's just this spot the spontaneity. Everything sounds improvised. Everything sounds uh, raw and um, immediate. And I think that's what really brought me to this record because again, this is like fall of '96. So um, You know, in utero was just three years prior. And I thought in utero at the time was like one of the most punk things I'd ever heard because I really only, you know, got into this music around the time it it became popular. I admit it. Like I didn't, you know, I, (laughs) like Mike Watt says, you can't help when you were born. And, uh, you know, I got into grunge basically on the ground floor of, you know, a mainstream acceptance of it. So, For me, this record was one of the craziest, most intense things I'd ever heard at that point.
1: I think that's a good description of of what I like. It sounds improvised, but I mean, we all know you you can't go into the recording studio and just. I mean, I guess you could. It would be probably a clusterfuck, but you can't go into the recording studio and just start playing your instruments and hope something comes out. Like, there's a madness. To this, but it's it's a well thought out madness. And there's a right. lot of really cool guitar riffs on these songs. Um, there's a careful calculation with never sort of repeating the same idea in terms of structure or or in terms of feel. I mean, there it's all over the place and yet it's cohesive, which I think is what's cool about this record in that. It sounds like it all belongs together, but it sounds like it's all coming from different planets in terms of you got stuff that's really bluesy, riff-based, but then there's no like chorus to it like you would expect in like a blues song. And then there's other songs that just sound like absolute chaos, but yet they might go into some part that actually is melodic. And these juxtapositions of, of sort of approaching... Uh, melodies that are uh, catchy, but then abandoning them really quickly, and then finding other parts, grooves, and and riffs and licks that are so close to like something you might hear like from an early Keith Richards, but just like ten seconds of it, and then it's gone, and then it's all of a sudden it's in some other weird dimension. Um, it's an interesting listen. It's definitely not for everybody. I mean, this is such a small, I think. Or is going to appeal to such a small group of people, um, but it's going to be people who are you know adventurous and who like hearing other weird sounds. I, I mean, I'm surprised. I'm, I guess I'm not surprised that they're on Matador. I think that this record actually got distributed by Capitol is probably mm-hmm. the is probably the crazier thing because I'm guessing they went back based off of Bell Bottoms being a, a minor college radio hit and thought, oh, okay, well we'll we'll bring the the next record up to capital for distribution and then they get this record <laughs>
2: i'd love to be the capital exec who puts this album in and listens to the first 30 seconds and goes well what uh, how are we supposed to do anything with this like this is crazy i i want to i want to uh piggyback onto what you said about the the variety on this record and how everything kind of sounds like it's from other sources or planets but but then sounds cohesive i would put this uh in a category of being a premier uh driving record on a trip or, or something because and and i bring up mike watt i brought up mike watt before and i'll bring him back into it um his album ball Hugger tugboat um which is uh fantastic it fits in the same way in that like Good driving records should be should have a lot of variety. Um, they don't necessarily need to be long. They should they could be long, but having a lot of variety and a lot of pace changes and a lot of things to keep you on your toes, um, and that's that's what this album has. I feel it's a really really good like windows down driving record um, that has a lot to do with. Obviously, it's ties to blues and to you know early rock and roll and stuff like that as well as as well as garage and punk and and things of that nature but um, I find I find it to be a really really good driving record. Hmm. So the bonus uh,
0: tracks on the iTunes edition, there's some radio ads for this. There's four radio ads. I don't know if you guys listen to those, but I did. One, I did. Yeah, yeah. One starts with the. Uh, Uh, mentioning the Matador capital and then says this is too much rock for one
2: record label. (laughs) So they address it like (laughs) up front on one of the ads. Can somebody look up? Did they have um, did they have any ties to Grand Royal at any point? I thought they might have. That's what my assumption was when I listened to this because I
0: heard a lot to me I was hearing especially at the front half of the record I was hearing kind of that era of Beastie Boys and just my memory I was like oh was this a a grand royal release was their connection there because it, it kind of felt like like it should have been uh, right. in some ways
2: yeah because i mean there's a through line they're vastly different bands but there's a through line i feel between beastie boys john spencer blues explosion and then something like luscious jackson mm-hmm. um which obviously was tied to grand royal quite a bit um so i yeah i mean if i if you hadn't if we hadn't discovered that matador and capital both kind of like jointly released this i would have assumed it would have been if it was on Capitol, I would have just assumed, oh, so it's a Grand Royal imprint then. So,
0: Yeah, there's a couple tracks on here that sound – well, there's – I mean, fuck shit up, track four is looped. But there's some other songs where there's moments where they. it sounds loopy. I don't know if it's just a performance thing or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, if it actually is. I think like Whale, like you hear the guitar riff play and it drops in volume at this one particular point and it keeps dropping in volume. Which made me think, like, are they actually looping some of these guitar riffs? Like, there's some construction going on, parts of this record that make it feel like, like I said, like a Beastie Boys or even Luscious Jackson kind of,
2: kind of vibe. Yeah, I would, I would, uh, I would agree with that on something like late in the album. uh, One of my favorite tracks, uh, "Get Over Here." Um, That would probably sound like that seems like loop drums to me, and it has that really overblown in the red uh sound for the drums that um that you would uh you would get from like uh say like what you want off check your head. Yeah. Uh, uh, and stuff like that.
1: Yeah. Track what is it? Uh looking through the Eleven Can't Stop is credited mm-hmm. to Money Mark, who played with the Beastie Boys throughout the nineties. Yep. So I mean there is definitely yeah, that piano sound sampled for sure. Yeah, and I don't know if if he actually—I I don't know if that's—he got the writing credit along with a band called Explosion. So I don't know if that was his band or I, I can't. There's no like link in okay. Wikipedia to describe what Explosion was. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. So can
0: I can I can I bring up the thing I don't like about this? a a record (laughs) go ahead please please do it It could be one could be one of many things (laughs) can we start we shift in that direction yes um so vocals um his elvis kind of thing like it 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 makes it all a little too campy for me um Mm -hmm. he kind of does the warble elvis impersonator thing a little too much um sometimes he gets away from it and when he just screams or just kind of delivers a normal voice i'm down but when he goes overboard and, and goes into the sticky thing it just makes it hard to i know it's fun but it, it starts to cross a line into being it's too campy that i can't take the rest of it seriously uh it just makes it a little bit more difficult for me
1: yeah i have that same problem sometimes i'm just like just sing it don't Like he's so like there's spots where he's just like uh, I I know what he's going for. I mean, it's it's supposed to be ridiculous. So but I I think I'd appreciate it more on a I don't know, on a different level if if I felt like he wasn't it's almost like he's mocking what he's doing or the or even the concept of a song by doing the the shtick. So I don't know what do you, what do you think about that, Jim? Jane are kind of on the same boat with the vocals.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I admit that I listen to this band in short bursts, um, and I couldn't really see myself as being an entire devotee of their catalog. Um, you know, that's why, like, when I listen to John Spencer Blues Explosion, I listen to this record, uh, and then that kind of gets me my my fix. Um, I do remember owning at least on CD, like following them to Acme, the record that came after that, after this. And uh, I think Plastic Fang was, you know, one of their late period records. I admit that I haven't listened to anything past that. Um, so yeah, it it takes a certain personality uh, or day for me to like really reach out and, and jam this record. Um, and I can understand, I mean, that's the thing. There's one of, I mean, this is one of many things that people don't necessarily love about, on Spencer Blue's explosion. Um, Another one being a a Milwaukee journalist friend of mine. I forget if it was Evan Retlewski or Matt Wilde, so I apologize if I I don't know which one because I follow them both pretty succinctly on Twitter. But one of them mentioned, um, you know, just in the age of internet rage and think pieces about breaking things down, whether, you know, things are sexist or racist or, you know, anything uh he asked could you imagine a band like john spencer blues explosion coming out now and you know three white guys from new york York city saying things like the blues is number one and putting on a Mm. fake fake kind of fake kind of like southern garage rock flair and you know whatever and that's an interesting question as a fan of the band i don't know how that would be perceived you know um Uh, I don't think there's a lot of that with Jack White. I think people who don't really care for Jack White kind of pump that up a bit about how he's kind of like, oh, you know, I'm the white guy who's going to save blues or whatever. Um, But at the same time, I'm a gigantic Jack White fan. I think everything that he's doing is really um, to, to bring it to light and to honor it versus exploit it. And I think that... The, I, I think that people could listen to John Spencer Blues Explosion and go, "This is if they if they came out now, I could see people writing think pieces that that this band is exploitive in some way, which is unfortunate."
0: Yeah, wow, that's a really great point. I I I had this a similar thought. I hadn't formed it quite that far because obviously there's a song on here, Our "All Got Soul." So I pulled up some. Thinking that's referencing Arl Burnside. So I pull up some Arl Burnside and start listening just to say, like, okay, well, the thread here is this is a thread to go back to. And that's the point at which it kind of hit me in terms of, boy, this feels, this could feel like they're mocking or, you know what I mean? Like not quite uh, or exploiting it. And I was a little bit uncomfortable. I think maybe the climate being different. Um, trying to understand what it is they're exactly trying to do once i've made that sort of direct connection um and you're right i think jack white does it he makes it his own enough that you know it doesn't feel exploited to me like he sings in his own voice he doesn't do an impression of a blues singer from the 30s you know he he actually sounds more like robert plant than than to me sometimes than you know an old blues singer so And, and I think he very much, you know, is himself and he just has a lot of great, you know, influences and he and he loves to celebrate that stuff and reference it and have people discover it and support it in every way he can. So I've never had a problem with him mm-hmm. um, in that way. But this record, I, yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't be on Facebook writing posts about it, but it definitely felt a little weird. Like, um, you know, a band I thought of when I listened to them, do you guys remember Dread Zeppelin? yeah yeah oh yeah right it was like elvis reggae led zeppelin and at some point you're like wow this is brilliant another point you're like well are they making fun of elvis and led zeppelin or reggae or are they you know it just gets complicated
2: and like you know in terms of art yeah it's great but i'm sorry i remember scratching your head getting the i'm getting the vision of um I remember Beavis and Butthead watching Dread Zeppelin. (laughs) Not really having, I think Butthead was like, that guy is fat. Like, you know, I have no idea what else I said, but I remember them watching Dread Zeppelin. Um, Yeah. Like, I don't think John Spencer Blue's explosion is as bad. I don't listen to them and feel guilty in any way. I don't think they are nearly like the band. I don't know if you guys remember the movie Ghost World. Um, where blues um, hammer, East hammer, yeah, picking cotton all day. It's you know four, you know, <laughs> like it's up there talking, you know, singing blue, you know, yeah. you know, blues songs or whatever. And you've got Steve Buscemi's character in there who's like you know a, a, a completely devout, like old school classic blues fan. You know, watching <laughs> blues hammer you know? uh, after after the authentic blues guy. You know, opens for blues yeah. hammer basically. Um, I don't think it's that. I don't think there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, I don't want to get too necessarily deep into it, but I don't think there's a lot of like, you know, race baiting or anything going on here. Um, I think they, I think the, my my thing is that I think they are genuine. I think they do love the blues. I think they were putting their spin on it by incorporating hip hop, incorporating garage rock, incorporating flair. Um, you know, maybe a little tongue and cheek. Elvisy kind of thing. Um, they were a unique band for that time, you know. And uh, I just think I don't think for as um, I don't know. I'd be hard pressed to believe that they were um, straight up uh, mocking it, you know, for sure. I think I think I think if you're straight up mocking it, you don't have eight or nine records. I think this is you know I think people who mock things like mock things in short bursts um and and kind of like add, to hang your career on that is is pretty would be pretty weird
0: yeah i mean dread zeppelin
2: only had two records so. <laughs> right right, exactly you're like oh we're done uh speaking of though i want to bring up the mocking point though um somebody might be listening to what i just said about you know not making a career out of mocking and then somebody would say oh what about weird al um weird al actually directed the video for for whale huh. uh the, the third track on yeah. this. and it and, and I feel when you mention campy, I feel it plays into that in a positive light. I think you watch the video for Whale and it's super campy and weird. But I think it I think it does it correctly. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, you know, John Spencer's head comes out of a toilet at one point. I mean, it's just it's weird. It's, it's weird for the sake of weird. And, and I <laughs> still can't believe Weird Al directed it. He's in it very briefly. I think the blues explosion is, is kind of marching down the street. And I think at one point they push Weird Al out of the way or something like that. So he makes his, 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 uh, Hitchcockian appearance, uh, in his own work. Um, but you know, weird Al's different. Weird Al is like, you know, like taking an actual song, uh, you know, finding a pun in there somewhere and remaking it and, and always getting the artists, uh, okay to be able to do that. And, you know, he's never necessarily mocking the, you know, the artist, So to speak, he's like kind of just like, you know, making the, um, making, making it his own in a, in a comedic fashion. So
0: a couple of the things I thought of when I was listening to it. One was, uh, um, Tim, I know you're familiar with Electric Six. Mm -hmm. Do you remember when we saw them before they were Electric Six and they were called the Wild Bunch? Yep. I feel like that they were, That was very much influenced by this. I don't know. It just seemed very similar in terms of just the attitude and the. It wasn't this, like, I guess, raw. It was more of a party kind of vibe, but. Right. um, That band kind of came to mind. And then I don't know if either of you watch vinyl or you've seen at least the intro to vinyl and the song that they have at the intro, but it's like a. And the show's set in 1973, but the intro song is. It's like this vaguely uh blues-based hip sounding but nondescript song. Like the vocals sound like John Spencer vocals, but the lyrics are indistinguishable. Like you can't understand what the guy's even saying, if he's even saying a word. It's kind of just like hur, 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 that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's got <laughs> like this, you know. It just reminded me of that and and i've always been annoyed by that's that intro song because it's like it seems like uh it was made in a lab like we've got to create something that's you know would have been hip in 1973 but it is also hip now and also shows our reference you know our our references to you know the roots of rock and roll and is edgy you know it's like pieced together and calculated into this song that's At the end of the day, means nothing (laughs) because you listen to it. You're like, "Yeah, this is just a generic song." That's you know what I mean. It was supposed to do so much, and it ultimately does absolutely nothing. So there was also a little bit of me feeling like parts of this record where you know it was so much of that was coming together to actually represent very little other than the energy.
2: Yeah. Well, I I feel bad for having a vinyl podcast. I've not watched one moment of vinyl yeah neither uh, have I and, and I've heard mixed I've heard mixed things for sure um but uh yeah I, I just don't have the HBO go or normal HBO or anything so I'm sure that, jump, jump on YouTube I'm sure the uh, intro <laughs>
0: is
1: on there you'll kind of, kind right. of get what I'm getting at yeah so let me ask you guys in terms of your overall feelings on this record is this an album that people who may not be familiar with john spencer should check out or um what what sort of mindset do you have to have i guess to to be suggesting this or, or what sort of mindset does the person that you're suggesting it to have to be do they do you have to give them a warning ahead of time like you're not going to get any you know blatant hooks or anything like that if you're uh. um, what, what sort of warnings you're going to present or or, or caveats J one, you go first because I think
2: because I, I I I think I think we'll do we'll do a good cop bad cop here and and uh, and you can tell people kind of like the the chaotic prep they might have to do and I can kind of try and sell some of the positive points.
0: Well, I think if you're into the, I don't know, I feel like if you're into the kind of the Detroit the late '90s Detroit garage stuff, this is a good.
1: If you've never heard this, it's hard mean like to Like the dirt bombs and. Definitely.
0: Yeah. The, the early, even the early white stripe stuff or the go or any of that, um, even MC five, you know, I mean, if you're kind of oh, yeah. into that raw energy, uh, you know, simple, um, you know, song structure, um, you don't mind some distortion, you know, obviously they're, they're overdriving everything at times, uh, to make a point. Um, I think this is worth checking out. I think it's, uh, especially for the time period, I might even go back and check out that record for this um, just because, I don't know, I feel like uh, a lot of bands kind of took this and made it more accessible later. Um, And I think it's a good thing to go back and kind of listen to the reference points. Um, Yeah, I I
2: mean, yeah, I just want to jump in there real quick. Um, This record isn't even their most, I have no idea what sold most out of their catalog but if you bring up John Spencer Blues Explosion like this record does not come up a lot um I think Extra Width and Orange uh the the two before this and then I mean they had others I wasn't even familiar I've never even heard the first three John Spencer records which are uh a reverse Willie Horton, Crypt, and Self Titled I don't think I've ever listened to any of those so albums four and five which would be Extra Width and Orange um those get mentioned a lot this is their sixth record. And then the seventh record, uh, Acme, um, gets mentioned a lot too. Um, so this is not a – for you know, it's it's weird. Like this is not um uh for me, it's like the intro to this band, and I would recommend this record for starting uh, you know, an introduction into this band, probably solely on the fact that this is this was my gateway. But um but yeah, I just I wanted to I I didn't mean to interrupt you, Jay. I just wanted to throw in there that You know, like, this isn't even, like, a record that most John Spencer Blues Explosions fans would probably even recommend.
1: All right, then. Well, we're not going to recommend... No, I mean, (laughs) people should... I think people should check it out because it's such a divergent sound from what was typically associated with the 90s in terms of... Uh, mainstream popularity of alternative and indie music. You know, you mentioned Sebado earlier, and, and I feel like Sebado gets closer to that sound, especially on Bake Sale and Harmacy, because of there's, you know, st- structured sounds and, and songs, and you know, there's the connection to Dinosaur Jr. and Folk Implosion, and it, it kind of lends itself to being uh, a little bit more acceptable with the people who are sort of into rock music, but not necessarily into this deconstructed blues. Um, Whereas you got to take a couple more steps to um, to sort of reach this particular record. But it's, you know, there are a lot of outliers in the 90s that bubbled up, and we've touched on a few of them over the years, but this is one that, in terms of what Eric Davidson described as the gunk punk uh, sound, uh, this was one that we hadn't gotten to yet, so I'm glad we got to explore it. Um, so uh,
0: so for uh to get an authoritative take, quote unquote, on mm-hmm. this, if you look at like Apple Music has a best of garage rock revival. So they're they're in that along with the White Stripes, the Von Bondies, The Vines, The Strokes, New Bomb Turks, Detroit Cobras, Black Rubber Motorcycle Club, Ravenets, Black Keys, Kings of Leon, you know, so it's kind of running the gamut of the deconstructed noisy stuff to the super commercial pop black keys kings of leon kind of thing so
2: i'm going to i'm actually going to go on on a limb here maybe you guys will disagree with me but like if you really i think the black keys now that we mentioned them are probably if i had to describe john spencer blues explosion to somebody you know uh who who was who is familiar with the black keys but not with with JSBX. I think I'd have to say that they are a very dirty, raw, unpolished yep. version of the black keys.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and I think that's the thing with black keys. We talked before about, you know, what if a band like JSBX came out now? Like what would people think? Well, the black keys are one of the most popular bands in the, in the world right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and definitely playing the white boy blues card. Yep. Um, whether you like them or, or not. And um, I don't know. I don't see many think pieces about the Black Keys. Um, <laughs> I know Steve Miller doesn't out. like them. Steve, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I hadn't really thought of the Black Keys up until you just mentioned them. Um, and some of those bands are, you know, again, it's an Apple music list, but I mean, they're vastly different. Like I wouldn't put John Spencer Blues Explosion in the same boat at all with like with certainly the Vines or – uh, or the the strokes or something like that. I mean, garage rock that just that kind of shows how how vague of a list it can be. Yeah. Uh,
1: I don't know how Black Rubber Motorcycle Club gets on any list of garage rock that to me yeah. It's is not even that's not even close to their genre right. of music.
0: But but if you put on one of these songs, say the the song they pulled is from the album Extra With. So yeah. If you pull that song out maybe to a general music listener who's familiar with black keys and said hey this is the black keys when they were you know 14 years old
2: sure
0: <laughs> they sure. might go they might believe that they might be like oh i see okay they were raw and punky and then they you know polished things up and yeah the drums got louder and the guitars got quieter and I, okay i get it um <laughs> you know so i i think there's a there's a bit of a thread there yeah yeah
1: well gents we have uh we've gone over the hour mark and i think that's a good spot for us to um to wrap this up, Jim, what's, what's, uh, your, uh, what's going on with vinyl emergency? What's your podcast, uh, that's landscape looking at looking like right now? Sure.
2: Um, well, people can check it out on iTunes and SoundCloud, um, soundcloud.com slash vinyl emergency, um, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram also, uh, at vinyl emergency. Um, so I started this in January and I'd been for people to have some background on me. I've been interviewing bands um, off and on since I was about 14 or 15 years old. and I'm 36 now and I've written for um, freelance for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. I have uh, wrote a bunch for uh, modern-vinyl.com, prefixmag.com and uh, appeared on on other podcasts and stuff for a while and then kind of got the bug to do it and started up in January. So, you know, we haven't hit 20 episodes yet, but it's basically me speaking about vinyl uh, with a, a large range of people. and this can be people in the industry, uh, musicians who do or do not collect vinyl, but you know, if they don't collect it, maybe they've uh, they certainly have put it out. Uh, so we talk about artistic choices they've made as far as vinyl variants and gatefolds and that sort of thing. Uh, I talk with record collecting friends of mine. Um, we talk about digging and uh, gems in our collection and that sort of thing. I've had uh, some some people I'm very lucky to have on the show, uh, Brian Stack, who, is currently a writer for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert and uh, he wrote for Conan uh, on all the different Conan shows for almost 20 years. Uh, Him and I talked about uh, records as well. Um, uh, Both Damon and Todd from Braid, um, you know, uh, Josh Modell from the AV Club, Jay Ryan uh, from Dianoga and uh, you may know his poster work under the name The Bird Machine. Um, Bunch of different stuff. So, uh, currently I'm trying to set up uh, some really cool things that'm I'm, I'm super excited about. the Record store day episode. I think if people go check out, uh, that gives you a good range of uh, people and guests to kind of listen to and talk about uh, their collections. Um, I really enjoy it. Um, and it's not just for record collectors. like we don't get we do get into some of the minutiae of it, but uh, if people are just kind of into vinyl, um, it's for them too because we talk about life stuff, um, talk about different jobs these people have had. Uh, a record collector friend of mine came over and brought me a jar of honey and I was like, "Oh, no one's really brought a gift for me for hosting <laughs> a show" and and it turns out that he used to be a beekeeper. So we talked for 10 minutes about beekeeping because that's something I've never really talked to anybody about. So it's it's that kind of stuff. It's um it always comes back to vinyl, always comes back to like the first records you remember or things in your collection currently, but also it involves a lot of uh, life talk as well. So if people are just interested um in music talk and, and uh, just general good conversation. Uh, I hope people check it out.
0: Yeah. The record store day episode was phenomenal. So thank you on that. Thanks so much. Really enjoyed that. Um, And then uh, I really like the uh, episode you did on the review of the rock and roll Hall of Fame concert. Yeah. um, Yeah. Which is, I think it, it was interesting in that it was an insight of an event that a lot, not a lot of people publicly talk about that attend. It's sort of, you know, you see it on TV and you see press reviews, but to, to hear first account of
2: somebody who was there and how the how it all goes over when you're in the room, uh, I thought was really, really interesting. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah, that's a, a good friend of mine uh, in the Rockford area, uh, Rob Clark, and, and his tie to Rockford and Cheap Trick and everything. Um, he... Uh, snagged a ticket from a friend of his to, to go check it out. And I thought it would be neat to have him back on. He was on episode four at length talking about his record collection and um, and uh, lots of other things. And I thought it would be nice to have him on for, you know, 20, 30 minutes to talk about that experience at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And he's from Cleveland originally, too. So he had a, a nice statement about how he feels it should, you know, these things should be in Cleveland year round rather than every couple of years. So.
0: Yeah, I was, and your your show is one of those where you really feel like you want to chime in. <laughs> and that, that was one of those times where I was like, ah, I so wish I could call in or something right now. So, yeah, um, yeah, uh, I'm from Cleveland. I actually worked for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for a while. The they were a client of mine. Oh, okay. And, uh, as you guys were talking about it, there was I think one point that I would have made that maybe makes helps make it uh, make some sense. Um, it's unfortunate, but. So they are structured in really two entities. There's the Hall of Fame, which is New York-based and basically run by the Rolling Stone Music Mafia. And then there's the museum, which is the true – and that is Cleveland-based. And that is the true music kind of nerd people who don't get paid a whole lot. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) and just yeah, do it yeah. because they love it. And they usually have some sort of background in, you know, uh, history or, you know, something like that. So they're very academic. And so it, that's why I think you see a split in why they tend to do the events in New York. And because that's all hall of fame, right? It's not museum. Right. And True. then the whole money issue, which I thought was fascinating that Steve Miller brought up. Again, you know, that is the hall of fame looking for the money, you know, yeah. the people they're inducting and making it and trying to constantly make it a business because it's more of the, you know, the Rolling Stone side of, of folks, whereas the museum is basically, you know, never well-funded, always scraping to keep, keep the doors open and keep the thing going. Yeah. Uh, and so anyway, that that's my insight. I mean, this is going back probably 15 years at this point when I, when I worked for them, but Sure. That was very much reality at that point, and I bet it's consistent now. So, I'm hoping that with the anything good of the RNC uh, convention being in Cleveland this year, my hope is that that would uh, build some hotels and facilities that would make it more uh, uh, accessible and easier to host that concert yearly. Um, right. So. Anyway, that was my take because you guys were talking about it.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. And I, I appreciate hearing that because um, that info is, is really nice to have. I, I certainly didn't know any of that. And, um, you know, I'm the same way when I listen to podcasts. I think the sign of a good show is when you do want to chime in and stuff. And uh, if that <laughs> if that's how you felt with, with mine, I, I appreciate it. I, I feel the same way with you guys listening to, um, you know, some of the, the Chicago, uh, you know, the talk you guys had uh, was really good. Um, several other record dissection episodes and the entire 1996 episode was awesome. Um, You know, so that's what kind of got me into into your show. And um, yeah, I appreciate you guys checking mine out. The the one, the other thing I would mention too, is that uh, I've been having some uh, neat contests from time to time too, um, through various uh, friend connections at uh, Warner brothers and Rhino and uh, run for cover records, uh, intervention records, which just repressed um, two Everclear albums, which are kind of higher to find normally uh, on vinyl. So, if people are interested in getting some free stuff too, uh, there's usually some contests involved as well for listeners and stuff.
1: Is the first one World of Noise? Is that the one? No, uh, they did uh, Sparkle and Fade and then So Much for the Afterglow. Oh,
2: okay. I really like the first record a lot. Oh, sure. Yeah. It's okay. that's, that's a great record too. Yeah. But, um, but yeah. So, uh, no, it's, this has been, this has been a blast and, uh, um, yeah, I'll, I uh, I appreciate you guys having me on to talk about this uh, weird, weird ass record.
1: <laughs> well, you'll be back later in the year, and I don't want to give it away yet because it's it's too far away. But we'll be talking about something less weird um, down the road.
2: Absolutely, no, I can't wait for that one as well.
1: That'll be fun. I uh, want to remind everybody. Speaking of contests, that we are running. I think we're still running. We may not be. There's a contest if you don't going know, on. Who would know? I'm trying to think of the dates. What's what's uh, the no, it's over. Somebody won. Uh. <laughs> Congratulations to so and so for winning the contest. You'll be hearing from us. Way to go, so and so. Can ed- edit that in right yeah. now. Yeah. Way to go, insert name, for winning the contest from insert place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have won insert prize. We'll have more contests coming up, so that means you should subscribe to Patreon. Uh, our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash digmeout. For a dollar a month, you get all the access to uh, our behind-the-scenes stuff. You can help us pick albums. You can comment on them. You get early access to records we're going to be reviewing or roundtables or interviews. You can pose questions for our interview subjects. And then you get bonus material uh, from shows when we actually have some bonus stuff like, like this one. And uh, for the 250 level, of course, you get to pick a record after 12 months. So if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. Jim, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. Jay, thanks for showing up for 277 consecutive episodes.
0: Hey, no problem.
1: Sure. (laughs) Do you get some sort of Iron Man award for that? I
0: know. I know. What do I get?
1: You get it at 279. So just two more to go. (laughs) All right. All right. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out.
0: Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com backslash digmeout or requesting a review for the 2016 season at our request a review page at
2: digmeoutpodcast.com. And kiss my ass because your girlfriend still loves me.